Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, good morning. Please do not hold Chris's divisive and even hurtful comments <laughs> against me or Beacon that was unscripted, unnecessary even. So some of you are familiar with uh, the Babylon Bee. I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's um, uh, it's a Christian uh, satirical news site. It's just about as trustworthy as CNN, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little bit behind. And um, this particular article I found really fascinating, and I, I actually had to draw issue with it because I don't think it's true. I, I think it's wrong, um, and which is funny to talk about the Babylon Bee that way. But I, I think it's wrong because there were no... There were no journalists in the way we think about them back then. And so I don't know what they're even talking about because, you know, if there, I'm not saying he wouldn't have avoided them if there were journalists back then. I'm just saying there weren't any. So historically, it's anachronistic. I'm not, I'm not really buying it. However, we do get to see that Jesus did avoid, it seemed in some ways, at least one group of people, which we could really call the church people. So he seemed to want to hang out with the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, and he largely tried to avoid church people. So I think we probably need to take a lesson from that and why. In fact, that's really even going to be part of the text that uh, we're going to be looking at. We're in a series called Move, and uh, our, the idea here was uh, to do a somewhat different kind of series. Uh, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark, and the plan was that we would simply go right through the whole Gospel of Mark, starting at the very beginning and kind of going verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph, right up through uh, the end of the, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we would just give us all a great big overview of that book and kind of just talk about the different parts about it. And, and we would end by Easter. That was kind of our hope, is that we would take this series and end by Easter. And then, and then Chris and Trevor took the first three um, uh, the first three in, in the series, and they, uh, they, got at, they, they didn't get out of Mark chapter 1. And so I don't know exactly what that means for us now, but uh, so they, uh, we had our little planning meeting, and they're like, yeah, so I think you've got to do like chapters 2, 3, maybe 4 um, today. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be actually just trying to make it through most of uh, Mark chapter 2. And what, what we see happening here is, you know, normally we take kind of a big idea and we take a single little text and we kind of ex expand it and we apply it in kind of one general way. But what we're going to do is kind of walk through the text 
We're going to pull a couple of ideas out along the way, depending on what we find in them, and then kind of a few uh, overarching comments. But in the end, we're hoping that it'll give us a, a great sense as to the whole of the gospel of Mark. And so we're excited about the series. It's a little bit different for us. And I really do hope that uh, we can all uh, really come to a better understanding of who Jesus was and what that means to us. Now, here in this particular section of Mark 2 and 3, what we see is Jesus starts to sort of crash through a whole lot of the obstacles that are put up in his way, the religious obstacles, some cultural obstacles, social. Uh, he's going after some huge ideas, and he is going after them in some very concrete ways, and it's creating a lot of tension and a lot of conflict in his ministry, but Jesus never really seems to care about that sort of stuff. And so we're going to see why he was doing this, because in it, we, get a, we, get, we begin to get a picture of Jesus on a mission to reclaim the heart of God for us, that somehow we had begun to lose. And so he's crashing through all these barriers in order to begin to reclaim some of the heart of God. So you can open in a Bible. We're in Mark chapter 2. We will be starting in verse 1. It'd be great if you had a Bible because we are going to kind of just walk right through the text. It'll be super helpful for you. If you're able to follow along, you can use a print Bible, of course, or one of your digital Bibles. But it will be helpful to have a Bible open in front of you uh, for the, the whole of the message. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So it says he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is, if you know kind of the Mediterranean, you know where Israel is, down at the bottom there, you get the Gaza Strip, but up in the north is where you have the Sea of Galilee. That kind of drains down into the Dead Sea, and up on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see this place, Capernaum. Capernaum is, it's a smaller town, but it was where Jesus called home. In fact, it says that, right? It says that uh, the people heard that he had come home, uh, which I think is kind of cool because a lot of scholars, I like to say that this was like maybe Peter's house or something like the Apostle Peter. But there's also a possibility that this was literally what happened, like he had come home. Like, this might be taking place in Jesus' house, uh, which would be kind of cool. That means his, his brothers would be there, of course. Sister would be there. His, his mom would be there. And so you can imagine they'd heard that Jesus was out doing these, like, miracles and teaching out throughout the land. And now he came home. And all of these crowds start, you know, I can imagine one of the brothers, James, comes home after work. He's like, what's this crowd at my house? Like, you guys are trashing the place. Like, what's going on? Because they weren't really kind of buying the Jesus thing in those early days. And so you could imagine if this was actually taking place in, in Jesus' actual house, it would be, it would be sort of a funny, uh, funny kind of development for what, you know, we're about to see. Verse, uh, take a look at verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get, to Jesus, get, uh, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, it, you know, that's hard for us to imagine because we don't have roofs like that. But if you, this is kind of what a house would have looked like. 
in Jesus' day. And so they're all kind of square, single room, sometimes two-story, but they had an exterior staircase kind of in the courtyard. People could gather around in a courtyard. It's usually where the animals would have been kept. But they, you can climb up onto the roof. And so it's not like a roof like we have our pitched roofs. You think of it more like a, you know, like a, a rooftop like porch or deck or something like that, where you might go up there and like sunbathe or I don't know, you know, be a little wine and cheese party with your crew, right? You know, go up there, you can kind of hang out. But the point is that it's a flat roof. You can get up there and they were usually made with mud and thatch and sometimes with a little tile layer on top of it, but not always. And so these guys, they, they schlep their buddy up these stairs. They can't get in to actually be in front of Jesus and they just start digging through the top of this roof, which again, if it's Jesus' roof, it's, that's pretty cool because they're literally just like wrecking his place and his mom's like, what is that? So, you know, he's teaching there. He's trying to stay focused on what he's saying. It's important stuff. And all of a sudden, like a little dust and dirt starts kind of falling through the top. And, you know, all of a sudden they see him looking up occasionally, what's happening, and then bigger chunks start falling through. And eventually, I imagine one of his buddies just like puts his head up against the hole you know, to kind of look to make sure they're over Jesus' head or something. And they, they just keep pulling it back. And now you've got everybody's attention in the room just waiting for, you know, this kind of thing to play out. And all of a sudden, they, they just, like, bring a guy down. They just lower him down in front of Jesus and just kind of demand, in a sense, an audience. And uh, I really love this because, you know, it tells us that they were, he was carried by four of them. And what I love about this is it just gives you this picture of, like, four buddies, who will do whatever it takes to bring their friend in front of Jesus. It doesn't matter. Nothing is going to stop them. No obstacle is going to get in their way. They're going to, they're going to break with any sort of uh, social norms. They're going to even risk offense. It doesn't matter to them because they know that their friend has a need and they believe, they trust in the best possible outcome for their friend because they've heard the stories about this Jesus and they're like I don't care we're going to do it and could you imagine what it would be like to live your life in such a way can you do you do we even have do you have four friends like that in your own life who would do whatever it takes to bring you into the presence of Jesus are you one of those kinds of friends for others I just, I get this picture of these guys just like, yeah, we're going to get, we're going to make it, we're going to figure it out. They're going to, they kind of get in there and they lower him in front and they are expecting for the absolute best. And what they get is even better. What they get is even better. Look at verse five. He says that when Jesus saw their faith, he's talking about the friend's faith, which is somehow fascinating. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I want to comment on this for just a moment because there's this linking of sin and sickness here. So in the ancient world, the, it was very commonly believed that if you had some sort of disability, if you, had, if you were, had some sort of paralytic, blind, deaf, something like that, if you had some sort of a, an issue like that, it was, it was because you had sinned. And if you were born that way, they would often blame the sin on your parents. They would say, well, look, obviously your parents did something wrong, so your child was punished in this way. Very common thought, even today in in many parts of the world, that that idea sort of lingers. Uh, And you even see some threads of it in some of the, like, kind of health, wealth, and prosperity garbage that that you guys will kind of sometimes hear on, like, a TV preachers. Some of them, they, they talk about, like, these ways that, like, you know, if you had enough faith... 
You know, and so the lack of faith and the sin and suddenly that's why God isn't answering your prayers, which is like there's all sorts of like really twisted stuff going on out there in the teaching circles. But, but, but so I wished that, you know, the scriptures would give kind of a nice, straight, clear answer on this. And unfortunately, they don't. So in one place, Jesus will say, no, this sickness isn't caused by sin. And so you hear that and you're like, oh, good. Then we can say that, oh, sickness isn't caused by sin. And then in other places, like Paul will say, well, actually, no, some people have died because of their sin. And so you're like, okay, so what does it mean? Well, it, I think what it means for us is that we need a lot of wisdom when dealing with these kinds of situations. And so if you're, if you're involved in, in some sort of soul care, if you're involved in some sort of helping people, you know, kind of work through what's going on in their life and their relationship with God, then we have to recognize that not every sickness is going to be related directly to your sin. In fact, I would argue very few would be related. However it's possible that some is. And so we just want to hold out that possibility when we're helping others and we're trying to care, and even in our own lives, to at least stop and reflect on the possibility that there could be a connection between our sin and our sickness. Now, I think it's unusual. It's far less common. I think in, in most every case, you're going to see that it isn't linked directly, um, but uh, it's at least something that we want to uh, highlight and just kind of think about as we uh, think about this work we do in helping others. So verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So you have this scene, right? The guy is lowered through the ceiling. All of a sudden, Jesus sees the faith. You, you know what he's going to do. You know he's going to heal the guy. And he takes this radical detour. And he goes, before we do that, we're going to deal with another issue. And he makes this little claim, right? It's, it's easier. I mean, what's easier? And of course, we know it's easier. It's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. It's harder to say, get up and walk. I mean, most of us would be ready to say, if we had to say it, we'd go, yeah, 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 we can, yeah, yeah your sins can be forgiven. But if you had to get a, a paralyzed guy walking again, We'd be, we'd be like, all right, this is getting, a, we're getting up there now. We're getting out there. This is a, this is a risky game, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting nervous about being, because it's so obvious. I mean, the forgiveness of sins is one thing, but I mean, come on, this is so obvious. Like he's either going to get up and walk or he's not going to walk. And so Jesus says, of course, it's easier. But he references this idea of the son of man, which is a curious thing. We're not going to develop it too much today, but he's, he's pointing to something very powerful from Daniel chapter 7. And he's starting to lay this, this groundwork that there is going to be a role that Jesus fulfills that's going to go way beyond the healer of people's illnesses. And so there's some irony in this because, yes, it's easier to say it, but it's very hard to accomplish it. You see, the sins aren't just sins against other people. They could forgive you for that. But every sin is a sin against God. And if his friends 
thought it was a sin issue, they would have taken him to the temple where he could have offered an animal sacrifice because an animal would have had to have been killed for his sin. And that would be a placeholder for the forgiveness of sins, but it wouldn't permanently forgive his sins. For that, we needed something else. And so Jesus is starting to hint at this, that there is going to come a day where he himself will accomplish the forgiveness of sins. And that's not easy. In fact, that is the most difficult thing of all. It's easier to tell someone to get up and walk than it is to accomplish the forgiveness of sin. So how can he offer it when it's an offense against God? Because Jesus is, in fact, the God-man. So he can offer forgiveness for our transgressions against God because he himself was going to pay that price. I mean, it's just what we recognize as we came to the communion table. So there's a lot of different stuff kind of going on in here. And of course, that leads to everyone here saying there's just, we've never seen anything like this. That's down in verse 12. And so kind of just some general observations here. I love this picture that his buddies knew that they had to get their friend in front of Jesus. They just knew it. And they were willing to do whatever it took. And they were not disappointed because you see, Jesus... He looks past. He doesn't just see. And we do this, right? We, the first things we, we see about people are the physical things. You know, we, we want to help people. We want to help them with their emotional issues and their relational issues. And we want to help them with their physical issues. And that's great. And Christians, we should be at the absolute forefront of helping people with all of those kinds of issues. Absolutely. But Jesus, you see, he, goes, he sees right past those. And he sees to the heart, to the deeper issues. Right? He sees past the disability. He sees past the sin, transgression, cultural norms, social norms. He sees past all. He sees right into the man's soul, and he gives him what he really needs. I think this is such a, such a powerful moment that it would have spoken so deeply to both the man, to his friends, and to everyone there standing in bewilderment. We've never really seen anything like this. All right, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So he goes to Levi. Levi, of course, there's really two calls here. One is to Levi and one is to a tax collector. They happen to happen in the same thing, but they're worth considering separately just a little bit. Because Levi, is, he's a Jewish man, we know that, but most likely his name is related to the Levites, which means if he is from the tribe of Levi, he's, he's one of the Levites, it means if you've been kind of reading your Old Testament, he was from the, the, the priestly clan. And so Levi ought to have been working with the temple. He ought to be some, in, in some sort of priestly function. He ought to be doing the thing that was at the heart of the identity of the nation of Israel. But he's not. In fact, he's not even close to working with anything at all. In fact, as a tax collector... This guy was one of the most despised people in the whole of Israel. Because a tax, so here he is, a Jewish guy who is taking tribute, he's taking taxes from the Jewish people in order to pay the occupying force, Rome. So he's, he, he's funding the occupying force, 
by extracting money from his own people. He was hated. All the tax collectors were despised during this day and they were assumed that they were all cheats and thieves and liars, which is, of course, why they only hung out with other sinners because they were completely ostracized. They were disowned by their people. They were kicked out of the synagogue. And in fact, the rabbis would say that if a tax collector came into your house, that your whole house would have to be declared ceremonially unclean because it, he, they, the tax collector shared the air with your house. Imagine that. Imagine walking past someone's house. They're like, oh, please, please don't come in. We got to like go do a whole purification ritual once you leave. You know, like what, that has got to wear on you to be that sort of a social pariah. And so here Jesus comes strolling up. And there's another irony in this, right? Because, because here's Levi, who ought to be working for the temple, but he's actually working for Herod. Herod was called the king of the Jews. He was the actual king of the Jews. But he, of course, in our understanding, from our perspective, was the false king of the Jews. So you have this guy, Levi, who ought to be working for the temple, and now he's He's working for the false king of the Jews, and the real king of the Jews walks up on the scene and he goes, Hey, Levi, leave it all. You're with me, man. You're with me. And Levi immediately gets up and he does it. So he must have heard, he must have known something about Jesus. He must have been listening to his teaching or hearing those something. Something happened in that moment, and Levi said, I'm going to be restored all at once. Not only does he now get to do the, the real temple work. But now he gets to, to do the work for the real king of Israel, the real king of the Jews. So there's this restorative. So the first guy, he's restored back to health, and he's restored spiritually. And now you have this guy, Levi, who is being restored socially and emotionally and, of course, spiritually as well. And Jesus, he's just crashing through these barriers to draw people to himself. And then we see in verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here we see a, a quick little dinner party, right? I, we don't know the timeline or anything like this, but it's all strung together by Mark really, really tight. So Levi experiences this restorative moment. And the first thing he does is throw a party for his friends. You know, so everyone sees this differently, right? The Pharisees, what they see are sinful people who will make them unclean. So they build up barriers and fences. They would never eat. The Pharisees wouldn't eat with normal Jewish people. Forget a guy like Levi. Because you're, they're going to be tainted. They're going to be made dirty by the sinners. That's one perspective. Then you have Levi who's like, listen, I just met a guy who was willing to not only share a meal with me, but he's willing to call me into my true calling. He's willing to forget. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to, to restore me to who I was meant to be. He sees something in me. And immediately, Levi's response is, my friends could use this. 
My friends need this same message. And so he throws a party. He's doing anything he can to get his friends next to Jesus. What do his friends see? His friends, how they experience it? They're like, this dude is cool. Jesus always seemed to be the party dude, right? He always, he always brought that piece to these events, that, that thing that caused people to want to be around him. Even sinners wanted to be around him. So he's a life of the party in some way, which is a fascinating idea for followers of Christ. And so here he is, and and all of these these, these sinful people feeling the love and the acceptance and the respect that Christ brings. This must have been incredible for them. This would have been so outside of what they experienced from church people, religious people before that. And then you have the perspective of Jesus. He's sitting at this party, and what does he see? See, I... I don't think he sees what Levi is right now or what these sinners are at this moment. He doesn't see a prostitute. He doesn't see a tax collector. He sees a child of God, a person that was created in the image of God. He sees what they were meant to be. And he sees what they will become as they surrender themselves to him, to the real king of the Jews. And he sees what they are destined for in Christ. See, there's a whole shifting perspective that's going on. And of course, he says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. You can almost put that in air quotes. I haven't come to call the righteous, but I'm coming to call the sick. Verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And there's this thing going on here, which I think is, is kind of help framing it all. It kind of ties to the, the Son of Man thing that he mentions earlier. But he, he's pointing them towards the new way that, that things are going to start playing out. A new day is dawning. And he uses a few different images, right? There's the fasting Pharisees and the, the disciples of John the Baptist. They had regular fast days and they're noticing that Jesus' disciples aren't doing that. They're saying, how come? What? That's what religious people do. That's what church people do. And he's saying, yeah, but you're missing it. This is the beginning of a new day. See, to be with me, it's like your wedding day. It's like, it's like the, the banquet you have. It's like your reception dinner. It's like your honeymoon. That's what it's like to be with Jesus. I mean, very provocative kind of language here, evocative kind of language as well. And he's saying, look, and that's what it's like. You can't ask these guys to mourn yet. But he hints there that something, another day is going to come. Something is going to happen where he's going to be taken away from them, where there will be heartache and there will be sorrow because sin must be dealt with. And he knows what that's going to mean for him. Then he gives them these other images besides the wedding. And he says, it's like, uh, you know, this piece of cloth, right? So you have a garment. It's an old garment, so it's already shrunk. And then you put a new piece of fabric on a patch. And then when that fabric shrinks, cotton wool, you know, they don't use like polyester blends. And so like it, that shrinks, it pulls away and it makes the hole worse. He says, you can't do that. 
or the wineskin, right? He, he kind of has this picture of wineskins, and he says, so in the, old, in the ancient world, did anybody make wine? Do we still have any of those people that make? I know some of the old Italian folks from like our old neighborhood. You guys make wine? Anybody make wine? No one? Yeah? You're, so oh, you do? Yeah, you make homemade, homemade wine? How come I didn't know that? So anyway, so I, so you know, so what happens is you take so when I grew up, you know, there were these like you know these like old timer Italian guys. They would like get grapes shipped in from Italy and all this, and they wouldn't like really do the stomping in a barrel thing. That's not like what you do at that scale. But instead, what they would do is they would you know you'd punt, you'd, you'd crush up the grapes and you'd stick them in a container, and the process of fermentation would begin. And so in the ancient world, the way they did that is they would they would skin an animal, and it would be a fresh skin. They would sew it up. You would put the grapes in there, but then as it as the, the fermentation process happens, it expands, right? It, so it creates all these gases, and so it expands, and so that skin stretches. Once it's stretched, that's it. You can't use it again. You can store stuff in it. You could store wine. You could store water, but you can't actually use it again to make wine because it's now too stretched and brittle. So you need new skins to hold new Wine. If you want the new wine that Jesus is offering, you need new ways of thinking about God and sin and forgiveness. And that's what he's introducing here. He's introducing the way that God really feels about sinners. And he's trying to break through all of these misconceptions that people have. And he's introducing this idea of the new Thing Because a new day is dawning. In fact, it had already been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, and it will be fully instituted with his death and resurrection. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he was, in fact, a friend of sinners. And that's the question for you. Could you be considered a friend of sinners? There's this old hymn, uh, hymn writer uh, uh, Wilbur Chapman, he wrote this old hymn, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. This is, there's something that went on with this guy's life. He had gone through incredible heartache. He had, he had lost two wives, uh, had died. He was, a double, he was a widower twice. He had lost a child, very young. And that was around the time in his life where he wrote this hymn. But when you read it, you realize... When you, know, you kind of read through his life, you, feel like, you realize he was involved in Christian ministry and service his whole life. He was a very devout follower of Jesus, and yet he refers to himself as the sinner. See, he, he, he identified with Levi, not with the Pharisees who said, I don't need a savior. I'm good. I'm doing well. In fact, this guy, he turns around, he says... Jesus is the lover of my soul. He's my friend because I'm the sinner. This guy was an early Billy Graham. He, saved, he went out and he preached to, to lost people all over the place. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people came to know Jesus, lost people. What would motivate a person to dedicate their life, their life to reaching people far from God? See, he... He experienced it, the same thing that Levi did. Listen, his, the, the friends wanted to bring their buddy to Jesus, and they would stop at nothing. Levi could, as soon as he experienced the love and forgiveness of Jesus, it was the first thing he could do, because he knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners. He knew it because he was, in fact, a sinner. He had wrestled 
with his own unworth. So could you be considered a friend of sinners? Because you could be here this morning and you're listening to this and you're like, no, actually, I, I don't really need the Jesus thing. You know, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty good. I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm one of the healthy people. I don't need a doctor. In fact, maybe you've heard Jesus come up alongside to your table and he goes, listen, you're working for the false king of the Jews and I'm offering you an opportunity to leave all of that behind. Maybe you've heard that call on your life. Maybe you're hearing it even right now through this message and you're saying to yourself, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to follow him. I'm quite comfortable where I'm at. And I don't want to go any further with this Jesus guy. And I'm just asking you to reconsider that. He's stopping by and he's calling you because he knows you need a doctor. He is the greatest physician of the soul. He's calling you out to follow and to be with him. Be like Levi, drop it all, leave it all behind and let Jesus direct your path. Now you might say, you know what? I did that, I'm good. And maybe you did. Maybe years ago you heard the call of Jesus on your life and you said, I'm up, I'm out, I'm following him. I'm leaving, you know, my false king of the Jews, whatever that looks like to you, and I'm going to follow him. And maybe you did that exact thing. But somewhere along the way, you forgot to apply that to the lost people around you. And it's simple to know. Look at your relationships now. Look at the last time you shared the story of Jesus' love with a person far from God. Have you found a way to bring your law, the people in your sphere of lost people, have you found a way to bring them into God's presence? Have you stopped at nothing, like the four buddies, have you stopped at nothing to bring your friends to Jesus? Or have you just sort of said, you know what, I'm going to kind of live and let live. How could you do it if you really fully experienced this out? I mean, which part of it do you not believe? Because there has to, for us to live this way, and this has happened to me over the years, time and again, where I watch my heart, it starts to get cold, and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I'm not really spending time with people who are far from God. We kind of insulate ourselves, we pull back because, I don't know, maybe we're more separatists, maybe we act more like the Pharisees in those moments. Instead of the taking the risk and things getting messy and we get out there and all of a sudden, you know, we, when we see that, we're like, oh, you know what's going on? I'm pulling back, my heart is starting to get cold. And Jesus is saying, but, but which part of it do you not believe? I'm telling you that lost people are in jeopardy of spending an eternity separated from their creator. They're in jeopardy of the punishment of hell. A decision that they will make unless someone brings them close to Jesus. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, the scriptures tell us. You see, this is what he's calling us to do. And so if we're not doing it, we've got to examine our hearts and see what's going on. Which part of the gospel story do we not fully believe or embrace? We talk about blessing our neighbors or blessing people who are far from God. It's, God, it's just a little acronym that we use and it's a super simple thing. And this is my challenge to you, that you would find some people that you would bless. And you begin with prayer. You find five or six or seven people. I have a list in my prayer journal. It's about seven, seven people in my neighborhood, people who are far from God, people that I know through hobbies and some other things. 
And it's just a list of people. And I say, listen, these are the ones in my sphere, and these are the folks that I'm, I am dedicating myself to, to help bring them before God. And so I start with prayer, and I pray for them, and I say, God, you know, soften these hearts. Just soften these hearts. Let them be, figure, how can I be used, God? That's part of my prayer. What can I do to help bring these folks to you? And you listen. You know, listening is a whole lot harder than, uh, you know, our self-centered world than we like to give it credit for there. But to listen to a person, to truly listen, means that we're really trying to hear the heart, the struggle. Because we're going to hopefully try to figure out how to align the gospel up with their hurts. Right? So the paralytic, he, the friends knew what he needed. They could just see what he needed. They, found, they heard of a healer. They brought him to a healer because that's what he needed. And you can do that. You can bring them to the healer because you're listening and you're getting to know them and you're hearing their hurts and you know where they need the healing. And when, the, when you know that, you can bring them to the Savior in that area. And then we say eat together. And that's a funny one. People look at it and they go, really, eat? Yes, because our time is one of the most valuable gifts that we can give someone. It's the thing we're often most stingy with as well. And so in this particular case, to eat with people is one of the ways to develop the relationship, to show your love, to prove your love, to sacrifice of yourself for them. And so you, it really means to share life together. We just use eat because it works with the acronym. And so serve is the thing you do next, which is now, again, another sacrifice of time, but a way of actually showing. This is you digging through the roof to get them in front of Jesus. This is throwing the party to make sure that there is a venue with which people can actually sit together. In fact, we've actually, we even know people that throw Matthew parties. Matthew, Levi's name is Matthew, by the way, as well. And so they throw Matthew parties where they actually... They look for opportunities to get, you know, their, their Christian friends and their, their non-Christian friends together. They try to pick their normal Christian friends or mostly normal Christian friends, and they try to, you know, find the people who are far from God, and they just kind of mix them up in this Matthew party like Levi did, and they just sort of, why? Because they're trying to figure out a way to get them near Jesus. And you can do that through the presence of other Christ followers, and you're looking for an opportunity to share your story. You're looking for those moments where you can bring that, that restorative power of Jesus to be able to share with them your experience of this Savior, to be able to tell them that this is what he's done for you. And that's it. It's a simple, simple plan that every single Christ follower could easily follow in order to bless their neighbor. And I really do hope, I really do pray that you commit yourselves to doing it even this week. Find that list, pray for them all month. Let it be a part of what you do each and every day. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a song that really does celebrate God's desperate love for us. And as kind of they come up uh, to prepare us for that, I just I want to offer up a word of prayer for our hearts as well. Lord, what we want is a heart that is like those guys, willing to stop at nothing to bring their buddy to Jesus. We want hearts that are so fully transformed by the love and the restorative power of Jesus that we can't help but tell our friends about him. We're asking, Lord, that you would make it so that our cold hearts would be warmed, that we would be able to sing songs and, 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 and write hymns and 
let's celebrate this great thing that you've done for us so that it will overflow the bounds of our heart and flow fully into the lives of others. Make us these kinds of women and these kinds of men.